We are uh, today. We are discussing Quado's Rebellion, our new podcast, strictly about '80s movies we love, and uh, me, Greg Bailey, and Andy Goodman. And uh, I don't think it needs a whole lot of explanation, other than we are talking about '80s movies that we love. So I think maybe we just dive right in, and uh, we chose two movies right off the bat: uh, Best of the Best and Big Trouble in Little China. And there's really absolutely no connection between these two movies other than we love them and we decided to watch them. Correct. And for some reason, they had both been on my mind. We have a very long text chain about this that is somewhat of the groundswell for this podcast where we had discussed mostly Big Trouble in Little China, but... So many other things. <laughs> That's a whole nother episode in and of itself is really a dramatic reading of, <laughs> yes. of that text chain. We'll just dictate the text <laughs> chain. But um, being that, I just watched the second half of Best of the Best this morning while I was cleaning my house. I thought maybe we'd start with that one. So I took some notes uh, watching this and I thought I would read off to you what I've written down and then... Any thoughts you have on any of these things, uh, feel free to give okay. take. Excellent. Okay. So the first thing I wrote down is James Earl Jones. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to cast a martial arts coach, who other? <laughs> exactly. So the second thing I wrote down, this one was in all caps and a lot more question marks and exclamation points is James Earl Jones. <laughs> I... You know, I know he's in it because uh, I've seen this movie a million times. But when you watch the opening of the movie and you see his name pop up, it's really quite a shocker. <laughs> that kind of like Orson Welles being in Transformers, the movie. It is quite <laughs> like that. <laughs> Just absolute shocker yeah. and you know, only goes in the positive direction. <laughs> okay. So the movie's opening scene, I feel, is a common one that we see in 80s movies. It opens... With Eric Roberts' character, Alexander Grady, working in an auto factory. (laughs) (laughs) Which brought me to my next note, was working in an auto factory in the 80s the most American thing ever. absolutely. (laughs) Without a doubt. I can't remember exactly what he was wearing, but it goes into my next note, which is, we need to discuss Eric Roberts' deep V in his hair in this movie. He has the mane of Mufasa in this movie, <laughs> and it is like a Pantene Pro-V commercial. He was the uh, inspiration for uh, Lorenzo Lamas's character on Renegade. Oh, God, I hope so. <laughs> well, I, we'll just go with that. Yeah. <laughs> and I hope Lorenzo Lamas hears this Wednesday and knows that he was second place. Yeah. <laughs> Should have gone, gone to Eric. <laughs> okay, so moving on, uh, all these guys, um, you know, they're they're... It is a standard great 80s movie in the sense that the beginning of the movie, they're assembling a team. And the team is to represent USA Taekwondo, which has a lot of fans, apparently. I, I, <laughs> I feel like Taekwondo was, uh, it was the next step above karate. I mean, anybody can do karate. Right. Anybody. Can right. Do Daniel karate. LaRusso Daniel can LaRusso. do karate. He can be from New Jersey and do karate. He couldn't do Taekwondo. There's no, <laughs> no, no. Taekwondo is another level. Okay, so moving to this tournament, you know, it opens, you see all the uh, the Korean team at the very beginning, and they're in this massive formation. They're all doing the same movements, and they just bring all the guys up that win. The American tournament is a bunch of 
you know, characters all coming together, uh, including, as it stands out, there's uh, Virgil, Sonny Grazzo, uh, Travis Brickley, who I'm going to talk about at length, who is Christopher Penn, uh, Alexander Grady, who's Eric Roberts, and Tommy Lee, who I'm assuming his real name is Tommy Lee, because I didn't even look it up. <laughs> so it opens, and here comes Christopher Penn as Travis Brickley with a boombox over his shoulder blasting country music to this thing and the first thing i'm thinking is how frequently does that happen at taekwondo tournaments that country music is being blasted fairly regularly i believe i believe you're correct i was just making sure you knew that too like 90 percent occurrence yes okay we're in agreement as it goes on you have a virgil who is a movie comes out he's like the buddhist kind of vegan character and i wonder is he the worst quote karate guy in a movie ever who plays virgil i couldn't tell you as far as i know it's the only movie he's ever been in we could do research for this but yeah (laughs) no reason to right so yeah he basically outside of this american tournament he gets his ass kicked the whole movie then we have sonny grazo okay and i wonder if there's ever been more of a stereotyped stereotype forced on a character than sonny grazo Repeatedly through the movie, he makes note that everybody has to listen to that he is indeed Italian. Like, I'm Italian. How am I supposed to? I'm Italian. <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that your Italian? That was Sonny Grazzo's Italian. Uh, <laughs> I'm just, I'm the messenger here. <laughs> then I'm wondering throughout this, and this is just at the beginning. Again, I mean, this is the first 10 minutes. And you can, I think, answer this pretty well. Uh, is Chris Penn even acting in this movie? Are you asking me? Uh, yeah. No. <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> yeah, my note here is if he is acting, he deserves an Oscar because it's it, it's gold. Um, this is a side note that I don't know that everybody else would be interested in, but the uh, you know we have James Earl Jones as the coach of the team. The I don't even know the president of the team. I'll call him is the principal from Three O'Clock High, who famously says, Don't fuck this up, Mitchell. (laughs) Correct. Uh, We'll get to Three O'Clock High in another episode. Correct. I also noticed uh, Travis Brickley, Chris Penn's character, is from Miami. (laughs) His country ass is from Miami. Right. And then Alexander Grady is from Portland, which made me wonder, are there auto factories in Portland? Well... If they are, they're not your typical Detroit auto factory. <laughs> they, these are the ones with a barista in them. So <laughs> they run on. Uh... Of course, this was this was just made well, well, well before Portland became something of t- a topic of conversation. So maybe this was the start of it. Maybe, maybe it was. <laughs> <laughs> maybe Alexander Grady is responsible for Portland as it is today. Okay, moving on. Is Frank Cuzo, James Earl Jones' character, the most underrated movie coach ever? Again, the answer to all of your questions is going to be yes. <laughs> They're all leading that way. So. Can we talk about how this came out the same year as Field of Dreams? Okay. <laughs> I did not know that. So did James Earl Jones, because we don't know which order they were filmed. Did he go from the set of Field of Dreams to this? <laughs> or is it the other way around? Which, which, which script did he get? And he was like, fuck yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think we it, both know the answer to that. Because <laughs> any good anybody can be a reclusive writer who goes on a, re- a weird ghostly road trip. <laughs> <laughs> right. And baseball has been popular for decades yes. at this point. Taekwondo is a bit of a hot plate, yes. I think, in the 80s. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so they're all, all of our characters are assembled for this team. There's a couple quotes that I have down that just I, I thought were appropriate. And one is a very hippy-dippy female sensei uh, that Frank Cuzo wants nothing to do with. And he tells her to her face that he doesn't need any damn sensei. And I have to believe him. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not like Charlie in Top Gun, where she commands respect and is, you know, immediately elevated to that status. Correct. Uh, I would say not only there's a lack of respect for this sensei, but if it was today, she probably would be part of the Me Too movement for some of the comments they make at her expense. <laughs> Mostly Travis Brick. Right. Speaking of Travis, because I really want to talk about him. Okay. So, small break, but... They don't know it's a small break because I paused it. (laughs) A small break for us. That was like three months. (laughs) We're just picking it up. So, what I wanted to talk about was there's going to be an assortment of quotes that I find fascinating. And I wanted to also talk about an event that it seems to... Bring it's like a uh, team building exercise in these movies that seems to bring everybody together, and that is the bar fight. Mm-hmm. We have it here. We have it in Necessary Roughness. If you're on, a, if you're on a tanking team and you need to turn it around, you go get in a bar right. fight at a country bar. Hundred percent. Yeah. On their way to the country bar, stereotypical Italian Sonny Grazzo is wearing a black turtleneck. In white Cavarici pants. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's all it's all coming back to me. Yeah. Travis Brickley has several lines in this because he is in his element as a Miami cowboy. As he's hanging out by the women's bathroom, I guess to scope the chicks, a mm. uh, girl walks in and he asks her, in his mind, smooth way, mm. going number one or number two. Wow, <laughs> with followed by a good smirk, right? Second thing I noticed, Virgil may be the worst fighter, but he also may be the best pickup artist. Mm. He is drinking uh, hot tea at the bar because he is such a Buddhist hippie. Right. A girl bumps into him and says, you know, oh my God, I'm sorry. And uh, he gets some of the tea on her and he says, oh, you okay? Did you burn yourself? And she says, no. And he looks at the bartender and says, what's the matter, bartender? I thought this this tea was supposed to be hot. And that just makes everybody laugh, and he rolls straight into it, and he's, like, good to go. He's, like, the only one that's, like, a sure to hook up that night. and So... There's something to be said for that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Then we have the catalyst of the bar fight, which is Travis Brickley. Okay. He uh, is hanging out by this girl, and her boyfriend, Bert, is playing pool. And he's very involved in this pool game, and isn't really paying attention to this girl. And so Travis moseys on over there, and it's like, hey... You want to dance? And she says, sure. So they're dancing, and it takes about 15 seconds before Travis is essentially fingering the dance floor. <laughs> oh <my God>. uh, <laughs> Consensually. Yes, yes, it is consensual. One of Bert's buddies notices this and is like, hey, Bert, go look at your girl, man. And uh, Are we in Miami? I don't know where we are at this point. <laughs> uh, Bert comes over, sees what's going on, 
taps Travis on the shoulder from behind. Travis turns around and Bert is ready to unload with, you know, a punch to the face. Being that Travis is on the Taekwondo karate team, of course, he's able to dodge and it goes straight into the face of Bert's girlfriend. (laughs) And it hits hard. (laughs) And Travis's reaction, he's very calm and he says, that's it, Bert. Don't take any lip from her. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. So he so he just cold cocks his girlfriend. Right. And because Travis is such a uh, <clears throat> cowboy, he th- it's okay to hit a woman if she talks back. Yeah. So naturally, don't take any lip from her after he decks her. Right. So this starts the all-around bar fight and really brings the team together. Can we talk really quickly about... Um, Alexander Grady in this bar fight because it's one absolutely. of the most iconic scenes. Oh, absolutely! Is that where you're going with next? Uh, no, yeah. but I would love to hear it. So, well, from what I remember, he's he's on the phone. Mm-hmm. I think he's talking to his wife. Correct? Because no, no, his wife is dead. <laughs> <laughs> he's talking to the son that he had with his dead wife. Okay. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> a, fa- a true, tried and true. I mean, we. He's a widower. He yes. works in the car factory. He has a son. Yes. He's on the Taekwondo team. His he's son at Walter. a bar. And he's going to make sure that he calls his son. Well, yeah. the the bar fight erupts during, to, due to the aforementioned circumstances. Mm-hmm. And he casually hangs up the phone and just hand chops somebody straight to the throat. Yeah. Don't, don't know who it is. And they had it coming. Right. And I will add <laughs> that he is walking straight forward with a confident stride when that happens and isn't even looking at the guy. He does it in passing, Andy. <laughs> He's on his way to the fight <laughs> when he just throat chops somebody. Yeah, correct. Ugh. It's it's amazing. And he also ends the fight by <clears throat> kicking someone through a plate glass window, much like the fight ends in Necessary Roughness. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So they've gone to this bar fight. They're becoming a team. Uh, then we fast forward to their initial training regiment. First day of training, right? Um, Frank Cousseau is kind of a hard ass. And they're all sitting, you know, kind of stretching out on the floor. He comes in, says, okay, five-mile run. And Sonny Grazo's like, hey, you know, that's like 20 laps around that track. And he's like, that's right, Grazo! Move it! <laughs> <laughs> so they do their five-mile run. And, you know, it shows them all sweating through it. And then next thing they're doing, and I think I only got the number because they're being counted aloud towards the end. They are, they're at about 165 push-ups straight, or sit-ups straight, uh, punching at the top of each one. So next question, is there any possible way that Travis Brickley makes it through that first workout? Well, no, due to, I mean, the five-mile run, he's not doing the five-mile run. Exactly. He's not doing the five-mile run. No, no, of course not. Um, so, oh, here's a tie-in to our other movie. When we first see the Koreans training, we get a good look at Alexander Grady's opponent, Seijin Kwan, who fought alongside Wang and Burton in Big Trouble in Little China. See, there's the tie-in, folks. There's the tie-in. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. We're not even professionals, and there you go. Right. <laughs> we see that the Koreans are simply far, far more hardcore than the Americans. They're militarized. Yeah, they are running shirtless in the snow. They're doing knuckle push-ups. They're chopping down trees with their hands. And uh, the Americans are struggling for a five-mile run. Right. Things uh, are not looking good for the old U.S. of A. Correct. 
Oh, and I also noticed here that I forgot they're also getting caned as they are training. <laughs> <laughs> just all the things that just make the USA such a great country is our fictionalization of how things work in other countries. Correct. Correct. And, uh, you know, I, I took them to heart as a child. <laughs> and then we go back and, you know, they're, there's dissension amongst the American team because of Travis Brickley and his, uh, not only his misogyny, but his racism. And, uh, uh, I shouldn't laugh at that. As, as they're eating, Brickley's having a go at Tommy Lee while he's eating some ribs. And Brickley says, spare ribs. He sees Tommy Lee eating these ribs. And he looks over at Virgil at, talking about Tommy Lee eating this. He says, spare ribs. That's a white man's meal, Virg. And then they go into this whole thing of how he starts taunting Tommy Lee. And he's asking him if he's yellow, if he's yellow. And Tommy Lee's like, obviously. So there's a lot of racial tension here. Tons. Yeah. All because of Travis Brickley. He's moving things forward in this movie. He is. He's pretty much the engine of the movie. <laughs> we get to see as they're moving along, you know, they start showing the Americans who their opponents are going to be. The Americans seem to be, you know, they're not very established fighters. These Koreans are like, he's the world champion for his weight class. He's the all-time greatest fighter ever. We also find that Tommy's uh, opponent is Dae Han, who killed Tommy's older brother in a... Cr Taekwondo match, uh, probably like a decade or Somebody two. Somebody has to die. Somebody has to die. Somebody's got to die. He, correct. Dehan is considered pretty old at thirty-five in this movie, but uh, it leads into once we find out his opponent is Dehan, to this amazing flashback that Tommy has of the moment his brother was killed, and this is again kind of like the auto factory at the beginning. It's to make it as American-looking as possible, and so Tommy Lee, young Tommy Lee, at probably like twelve years old is wearing a ridiculously oversized backwards hat <laughs> holding an ice cream cone. <laughs> right, right. It's coming back. And yep. the second his brother drops dead from a kick from Dehan, Tommy drops his ice cream. And we see it splatter to the floor, much like his brother. I had a special moment with that scene, and I, I had to bring that up. You ever going to think about ice cream the same way? No, because it comes back around in the movie, too. Um <laughs> uh, and this is basically, as far as my notes go, this is where I left off, and I picked up the movie again today where I left off. And we have a thing. They're getting ready to go to Korea. Tommy's freaking out. He doesn't want to go because he's got all these emotional issues. And so he takes off on his motorcycle. And he gets, I don't know how far out it is. He's got like half a day's drive out, and he pulls over to this gas station. And as he's sitting there, he sees a family, and the family has... Very apropos, an older brother and a younger brother. Guess what, Andy? They're both holding ice cream cones. Unfortunately, the youngest, who would be Tommy in this scenario, he drops his ice no, cream cone. No, no, He drops it. Tommy's watching all this from his motorcycle. Right. He can't take his eyes away. And it really moves him when the older brother, seeing that his younger brother dropped his ice cream cone, hands it to his younger brother very unselfishly and... Tommy kind of nods with a smile on his head from a distance. I imagine if any bystander was watching Tommy watch this family, it would probably be a very strange thing. But that changes Tommy's whole perspective. <laughs> and so he's heading right back to that training right. center to rejoin the team. Focused. Right. So, you know, off they go to the tournament uh, in Korea. It's in Korea. And uh, we have, and if you recall... There is a very famous announcer doing the broadcast for this. I don't recall. Ahmad Rashad. 
<laughs> is yes broadcasting doing the color commentary yeah, for the taekwondo yes. tournament which is uh there are rules apparently uh you know no like punches to the face or something and no kicks to the groin but there is no rule for how badly you can beat somebody okay they do not stop these fights okay uh we go through american team set they're ready to go they're all united they're pumped up first fighter to go is virgil and as we talked at the beginning of this, Virgil just basically gets his ass kicked. You know, he's a nobody. Right. That fight's over. This is all on a point system. So the Koreans are racking up a points, just beating up on Virgil. Next is Sonny Grazo. And he gets his ass kicked. Ah, I thought he would be the equalizer. Nope. Nope. You know who the equalizer is. Yeah. He's coming up next. <laughs> and his name's Travis Brickley. <laughs> kind of Travis's racism here, I think, fuels him to a draw. Which is a victory for the Americans because they've been losing the whole time. They're on the board. You know, he he overtly refers to his opponent as kimchi. Clever. I'll give him to it, you know. <laughs> it fueled his fire. So he tees off on the guy at the very end, gets a bunch of points, goes to a draw. And then they have to settle the tie by brick breaking. This came up in training and they did practice it, but we don't get to see much of it. So you see, you know, okay, Travis Brickley is a fiery guy. He can probably, you know, break a bunch of bricks. And he does a pretty good job. But he has a, of a stack of what looks like 100 bricks. He's got about three or four left that are unbroken. His opponent goes for it, breaks them all pretty much. I think he had like one left. Start counting and practice. Travis realizes he's lost that and asks the, the referees. He's like, why do you even count them for it? Clearly I lost. <laughs> so this is where the tournament takes a turn. Okay, so the Americans have some momentum here. They're not, they didn't lose that match. They came to a draw and then they lost some brick breaking. But next up is Alex Grady. And Frank Cuzo shows a little heart here because he surprisingly flew in Alex's mother and his son, Walter, Walter, Walter Jr., which uh, I don't know who Walter Sr. is, <laughs> right. you know, as it's, we're talking about. This. I don't think they, Alex quite understands maybe, the whole senior junior thing. Maybe Alex is his stepdad. We just never knew that. Hmm. Alex's opponent, Sejin Kwan, reputable fighter. So this is something he is supposed to lose. It doesn't go that way. Andy. No. He starts just back and forth with this guy. He's really clearly catching the advantage on Sejin Kwan. And uh, the music's coming up. You're just like, okay, it's time to go. The Americans are coming up. And then something tragic happens, which is uh, Seijin Kwan dislocates Alex Grady's shoulder. And we knew from the beginning of the movie that he's had surgery on his shoulder, and it's actually why he's not been active in Taekwondo most of his adult life. Uh, so he gets dislocated. He gets uh, helped off to the side, and the ref is like, do we need to stop the fight? And Kuzo's like, uh, maybe, I don't know, let's see. Alex Grady insists that Tommy Lee pop his shoulder back into place that's what you do with a dislocated shoulder correct you correct just, you pop it back in yeah we've seen it in lethal weapon Lethal weapon two <laughs> we know that's it's all a, that's the only thing we've seen it it's a pretty easy thing to do apparently and anyone can do it you yeah. don't need any kind of medical background no um so basically uh uh they want to disqualify him they don't think it's in his best interest to go alex is screaming at tommy saying pop it pop it pop it and he's kind of hesitant. He's like, do it, do it. And so Tommy Lee basically puts him in an arm bar, essentially, and pops it back into place. Alex screams so loud, it goes through the whole arena, and it scares his son, who screams out, Grandma, because he's so scared. They tape him back up. He's got one arm. And they tell him, all right, you've got 30 seconds left in this fight. All you got to do is make it through. 
he gets out, he's got this serious focus, and he still walks out there, one arm taped up, looks at Sage and Quan, is like, I'm going to kick your ass. Sure. So he starts kind of, the fight continues, and he's really just backing off, backing off, and he actually lands one punch that puts Sage and Quan in position on his knees where Alex just drop kicks him in the face and knocks him out of the whole arena <laughs> uh, to win the fight. And then he drops down to his knees crying in pain. Which to me is really like the the big, it's a penultimate fight, but it's probably the best fight. Right. But then we still have Tommy Lee. And Tommy Lee is facing Dehan, and it's the first time they've seen each other. And we don't even know if Dehan knows that it's Tommy Lee's older brother is, is at Dehan, this point. Is he remorseful that he took another man's life in a, in a ta- Taekwondo tournament? We wouldn't know at this point. Okay. We wouldn't know. Uh, that's that's kind of a reveal at the uh, end, and uh, but we do know that this is very emotional for Tommy. We don't know how he's going to do, and it's a great back and forth. They seem like they're very equal fighters, uh, but Dehan's a little dirty. But that's kind of what we expect. As this goes on, uh, the tie the fight turns for Tommy, and he really starts beating beating him bad. And this is where I kind of got disturbed a little bit in this movie. Rewatching it, clearly in fights here, there's a point where the fighter is so badly damaged that. The ref steps in and calls it. They throw on the towel, whatever. Dehan looks, he is so beat up. He he manages to get back to his feet at the end. And he is standing there defenseless, arms down by his side, swaying back and forth. His eyes are rolled back into his head. Like, you just see white eyeballs. He looks like a zombie from a zombie movie. And Tommy has to figure out if he's going to hit him again. If he hits him again, he gets a point. They win the fight. All a total. But if he hits him, it's clearly he's going to die. Uh, so what I'm noticing, so nobody stops this thing. They, everybody's waiting for him to just hit Dehan. To kill him. Alex Grandy is yelling from the side to his coach, you know, coach, you got to stop him. He's going to kill him. Fred Cuzo yells out to Tommy, who's in the zone, doesn't hear him at all anyways. He's just like, no, don't do it. Right. Uh, but they're, this is, they're legitimately concerned that Dehan might die. They don't run out there. They just like, hey, man, probably shouldn't do it. Probably shouldn't do it. Tommy ultimately decides not to hit him, loses the fight. Dehan drops to his knees right after. And then we get to the the end of the movie, which is the award ceremony. And this is where we find out if Dehan is remorseful. The fighters are separated probably by about 15 feet. They're in a row looking at each other. They're facing each other. Right. right. And uh, the Koreans are presented with medals. And after that, every the, all the Koreans, they get their medals. Uh, the whole arena is cheering for them. And then we see Dehan, just from the side, start limping towards Tommy. And it gets a very quiet hush. And Ahmad's like, oh, wait, what's happening here? Dehan starts talking to Tommy Lee. And he tells him, to save a life in defeat is to earn honor and victory. Your brother, too, was a great fighter. I deeply regret his loss, and I offer myself as your brother. And then he gives him the medal. Uh, I have chills. Yeah. If you look to Tommy's left, you will see Alexander Grady bursting with tears. <laughs> it is, I'm really shocked it is not a cry face meme. It is the bubbliest, snottiest crying you will see. Uh, which, and that inspires uh, Sajin Kwan to do the same thing. He goes to Alex Grady and he says, Alex Grady, Portland, Oregon. I know everything about you. Alex Grady says, Seijin Kwan, Seoul, Korea. That's all I ever want to know about you. 
And so they embrace, blah, blah, blah. And then you see everybody else embracing. Brickley's putting his cowboy hat on, the guy he called Kimchi. And uh, that's pretty much the end of the movie, Andy. And I was really excited to watch it again. And uh, I, I'm really excited to watch it as soon as possible. Wow. Okay. So we're going to take a quick break. And then I'm going to come back and we're going to talk a little bit about Big Trouble in Little China. All right, so we're back, and now I am going to talk about Big Trouble in Little China, which is John Carpenter's fantasy martial arts comedy adventure epic. So Opus. You, it's an opus. Mm. You kind of got the easier... You drew, you drew the straw of you get to review an easier movie. I'm reviewing a cult classic here. Absolutely intentional on my part. I, I know, I know. <laughs> So what I'm going to do is there there are a lot of plot points in this movie. So I'm going to go through. I actually basically wrote down the entire synopsis, oh and God. I'm going to read it off. I'm going to read off the synopsis. So if you're listening and you haven't seen this and you don't want any spoilers, stop what you're doing, go watch the movie, and then come back to us. So. I've watched this movie and I would like to hear the plot. Yeah, no, it's I never actually realized what the plot was until I watched it carefully writing the plot down. So, <laughs> um, OK, so Kurt Russell stars as Jack Burton, an arrogant truck driver with a big mouth and an even bigger ego. Ninety minutes later, a centuries old battle between the Chang Sing, who were the good guys, and the Wing Kong, who were the bad guys, the ghost of David Lopan and his three storms, thunder, rain and lightning human trafficking, sorcery, and Chinese black magic all taking place underneath San Francisco's Chinatown all gets resolved. It's all in the reflexes. I have never really known the names of all the groups that fight against each other, and sometimes I don't know if they're on the same side or not. Right. And something else I know we've discussed is, uh, you know, going back to the beginning of the movie, we see... Egg Shan, when we're introduced to his character outside of the very beginning of the movie, he's giving a bus tour right. of Chinatown. And then later in the movie, we find out that he owns the whole block. The entire block. So the question, of course, is how does his bus money pay for all this stuff? <laughs> and I think what we've developed between the two of us is that we know David Lopan is thousands of years old. They actually list off the year when one of the emperors of China banished curses David Lopan, and it's like I think it's like two seventy two BC. So he really oh. is two, you know, thousands of years old. But I didn't make a note of it. But they actually do tell the year. Okay, so we can uh, so we can break out a textbook and <laughs> actually see. So I guess we're left to believe that Eggshan is somewhat as old. Yes, because yeah, we, there, there's no doubt that he's been around for a very, very long time and that him and Lopan have battled each other before. Right. And they don't make reference <clears throat> of when. So we don't know if they're talking. They've battled like last May, <laughs> and, uh, you know, <laughs> six, they, mo six months ago. Right. Like over a water bill. Right. It could just happen a lot. <laughs> right. We don't know. But uh, so I'm assuming he's around the same age and from the same era and they do battle. And I think something I've mentioned to you before, too, is, and this is a little different, I think Wang is just as old. I think you're on to something there. I don't know if he's necessarily as old, 
but it's one of those things where and we find this out when we're ta- when when Wang is talking and what's so great about this movie is we are learning everything about Chinese black magic and sorcery and David Lopan we are learning it right alongside Jack Burton and mm. that makes it that makes it so much fun because as Jack is Jack's just all he wants is his truck that's all he wants he just wants his truck back and he's having to learn about a centuries old ghost who wants to rule the universe from beyond the grave we're riding shotgun we're riding shotgun (laughs) wang knows these things but to use his words he grows up and pretends to forget pretends to forget so he's always kind of known that he's instrumental in the story this is kind of his opportunity to figure it out right and we know that wang has a couple supernatural abilities. One of them we see, one we don't. So at the beginning of the movie during the gambling, you know, Burton's beaten Wang in whatever game they're playing. Some you form know. of dominoes yeah, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, so he's beaten Wang and Wang's like, okay, double or nothing, I can cut this bottle in half with this meat cleaver, essentially. And, you know, of course, Jack's like, no problem. There's no way you're going to do it. <clears throat> Wang's very confident that he will be able to do it. And, you know, he drops the meat cleaver down, you know, swift cut onto it, and it doesn't break. It just shoots right into Jack's hand, which is one of the first times we see his quick reflexes because he just catches it. And Wang's just like, well, that's never happened before, you know. And then he realizes later, he's like, oh, it must be because my spirit's going north and south. Right, his spirit's going north and south. Right. And then you're like, okay, well, so apparently he's done this before. And then later we have it where they are all assembled, they're... In the uh, Wing Kong exchange, and they're getting ready. To, they drink the potion, all of them. <clears throat> and from what I can tell, the potion seems to be, it makes you more focused and more confident with maybe quicker reflexes. So I think, realistically, this is like a mix of Jaeger and Adderall, you know, because... I, I thought you were going to go somewhere else, but we can go there. Well, I'll tell you why. <laughs> I'll tell you why I, I think it's something simple, because it's... a. Uh, no one really gets supernatural powers from this potion, except Wang. Right. At least that's what it appears. Uh, Jack, you know, for the most part, except for the knife catch. Except for the knife catch. That's it. He He's pretty confident. He catches the knife, throws it back real quick. But otherwise, he kind of gets his ass kicked. He fires his gun into the ceiling above him that knocks him out. Right. From the falling rubble. Right. He has another warrior just fall on him. <laughs> we, he knifes, but he can't get him off of him. Yeah. During the battle at the wedding, Jack is not, uh, he's not pulling his weight or he's not the star of the show in this this scene. Because we have the other guys that are with them, whatever the Chang Sing? The Chang Sing. Chang Sing. Who will have to talk about their hand signals. Yes, absolutely. And they throw several in this uh, particular part. Throughout the whole movie. Because, so those guys, you know, they're kicking some ass. And, you know, but they're not doing anything supernatural. They're They're not doing anything that we haven't already seen. Right. Wang, however, is fighting rain and they are doing 10 second aerial battles, you know, doing sword duels. And apparently Wang can jump three stories high. No problem. And he can run, he runs up the, I don't know how to describe it. Yeah. Like a full (laughs) funnel. Yeah. Like uh, he 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 basically runs a windmill. Right. And he seems the only one who has these powers after the potion. So my take here is he had them all along. Uh, and the potion just kind of brought him out. Right. I think it's a great take. Yeah. So we have to talk about Eddie in this movie. Oh, yes. Eddie, who is 
the new maitre d' at the Blackpool, who he and this is something we'll have to talk <clears throat> talk about as far as an efficiency quotient. Absolutely, he is the most efficient person in this whole movie. Uh, upon our our recent viewings here, we've kind of become mildly obsessed with Eddie. <laughs> <laughs> Look, he's he's polite as hell. Yeah. He knows all the information. He's kind of like Chris Farley's security guard character in Wayne's World, where he just happens to be there and know all of this information. It's great. That is a great reference. Yes. So, and I didn't even realize it until you mentioned earlier that he's the Mater D. Yeah. Because what we learn, it, not only does he, he's a, he's a ladies man, uh, he has all the intel, and apparently he has a lot of experience killing people. Yeah. Because he has no problem taking the smallest gun. No. And uh, he takes care of business when he needs to. Yeah. The first time uh, Jack kills somebody, and Jack's kind of a little bit staggered that he's like, oh my God, I just killed somebody. Eddie looks at him. He's like, what? Is that the first time you ever plugged someone before? Of course not. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, Eddie is the most efficient character. The flip side of that, the least efficient character in this movie, and you brought this to my attention the first time, and watching it again only further reinforced it. It's Lightning. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lightning is is the least efficient character in this entire movie. He, he really doesn't do shit. I can't believe he lasted as long as he did. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, you think about it, he probably went the way he should have. He literally just got a, a like a gargoyle dropped on his head yep. by Eggshan. Yep. And you would think it would be so cool because the guy can actually shoot Lightning from his fingertips, but... He spends all his time just generating lightning to throw around. He misses yeah, it, half the time. He's like a stormtrooper with it. <laughs> yeah, it becomes way less cool when it takes 10 minutes to warm up. Exactly. So, And, and like, then you don't even really know where it's going to go. No. And, you know, all, like during the Burning Blade ceremony, <laughs> right? Thunder's got his entrance with his, his daggers. Rain has his whole ceremony with the swords mm-hmm. that's what's, really cool what's lightning doing he's just standing there he's got a he's got a his voice sucks not a damn thing <laughs> that's what he's doing i was glad to see him take a gargoyle to the head <laughs> yeah and you think about it so all those guys so wang kills rain jack kills lopan which is like side note basically thunder as well since he blows himself up right side of it and then egg shan gets uh lightning so they all get one guy so there's a uh, some it's equity equitable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they they spread out the like yeah the glory. Do you want to talk about the the monsters? Yes, yes. So there's several. There's three. There's three. So, and I think one you brought reference to was the first one that's in um uh, the cave as they're they go down the uh, the fire pole the fire pole yep. from Egg Shen's I don't know office slash warehouse slash. It looks like building old, of mysteries. It looks like an old library. There's like <laughs> card catalogs, files just sitting around, and right, all of his magic beans. And uh, you know, of course, they open up uh, a thing in the floor, and there's a fire pole going fire pole. down to apparently a subterranean. I'm assuming it's San Francisco. It's underneath Chinatown. Yeah, it's underneath yep. Chinatown. It doesn't really look like a sewer, Andy. It's oh, no. Uh, no. it's the a river of the black blood of yeah. the earth. <laughs> <laughs> verbatim what Egg Shan calls it. And they get probably, what, 10 feet before this giant insect-looking creature pops out of a hole and just rips one of the Chang scene from his feet yeah. and drags him in yeah. to his hole and, we, and eats him. We don't ever see him again. No, no, he's dead. <laughs> yes, we witnessed a death yes. by monster. And uh, 
Then there's the Sasquatch-looking monster that's on the uh, Pork Chop Express right, at the end, right? At the very end. And then the eyeball monster, the Guardian. Yeah, and which I think we both agree that's our favorite for sure. You know, he's got it, it, when we say eyeball monster, like he's just this floating ball with it's a floating head, probably about fifty different eyeballs all over him. One of them is the on, on the end of his tongue. Which he uses to lick his big eye. Right. You know, the tongue eye to lick the, the big eye. Uh, and then, as you said, Jack just shoots him and, you know. Hey, you don't know until you try. It's just Jack being Jack. <laughs> That's what he says. He goes, you never know until you try. And he's right. Uh, he absolutely is right. Um, this, I mean, this is, like I said, I mean, best of the best is great. Love best of the best. But we're not really quoting best of the best a whole lot. No. Uh, outside of Travis Brickley, not right. a very quotable movie. Big Trouble in Little China, on the other hand, extremely quotable. Almost every line. Uh, I mean, I mean, everything Jack Burton says. It's all on the reflexes. It's all on the reflexes. The check, you know, yes, sir, the check is in the mail. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir, the check is in the mail. What the hell? What the hell? Ah, <laughs> oh, fuck it. Ah, <laughs> oh, fuck it. You got a random <laughs> F-bomb in there. Um, it's just an absolutely phenomenal movie. It's a cult classic. So, I don't know. How obscure do you think this movie is? I mean, that's, the, that's it's hard for us to judge because none of these movies are obscure for us. Right. And, you know, I think... Uh... <clears throat> I don't think it did too well in the theaters, but I think it became a cable staple right. when we were growing up, and so that's probably where we first got introduced to it. It ended up on a uh, VHS tape that we just watch over and over right. and over. But I think most people have touched this movie in some part. They've seen it, they're aware of it, or so forth. Right. Like, I think they're aware of it. Yeah. They haven't seen it. They're, they know. It's, it's, it rings a bell. Yeah, best of the best, there's probably like four of us that have seen that. Right. Hopefully more. <laughs> Hopefully more soon. So, have you heard that they're going to do a remake? I've, I've heard the discussions, and uh, I think with, with The Rock. Yeah, as Jack Burton. Yeah. Uh, I like The Rock. Yeah. He needs to stop making remakes. Yes, there, there are some things that are sacred and don't need to be touched. This is certainly one of them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there is no point. I don't even think it would do that well because... I will just watch the original. Right. And if you've seen the original, I don't think you're rushing out to see the remake. No, you're not. And there's no way they would get all of the minute uh, plot points that just make this movie so on just so tremendous. Yeah. Who's, I mean, I don't think you can do human trafficking anymore. No. No, Certainly you not to just forward the plot. <laughs> So. <clears throat> oh, and I was going to say this on a uh, human interest level. I, I noticed something about myself as you were talking about the plot at the beginning. And you mentioned that Gracie Law was at the uh, the airport mm -hmm. to grab Tara. Mm -hmm. Andy, do you know what the names of my last two dogs have been? Uh, yes, as <laughs> I do, as a matter of fact. <laughs> well, your first dog was Tara. Right. Great dog. Right. And to my knowledge, had nothing to do with this movie. Until we talk now, and I just got a dog last week, and I named her Gracie Law. And to hear you say that out loud, I'm like, I, I'm the Manchurian candidate of Big Trouble in Little China, and it's been in my brain for 30 years. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So, um, you got anything else? Anything else Big Trouble in Little China related? <clears throat> Not specifically. I would just say, 
you know, I've loved this movie for a long time. It's phenomenal. You know, it probably didn't get the acclaim, but, you know, for the most part, any movie we discuss is not going to have a lot of critical acclaim, and that's probably partly why I love them. Right. Uh, they're imperfect, they're flawed, but the flaws are what make them great. 100%. All right. Um, so that's Big Trouble in Little China. If you haven't already seen it, do yourself a favor. Um, rent it on Amazon for $3.99 and enjoy it. So it's phenomenal. And we're going to take a break. Or that, that's going to actually, that's going to wrap it up for this episode, the pilot episode of Quato's Rebellion. We will see you back soon when we discuss Over the Top. Over the fucking top. Ha, 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 ha.